This is Stinky Lulu Says, an irregular podcast about contemporary theater. I'm Brian Herrera, and I'm Stinky Lulu. I'm also a theater professor, and I see a lot of shows, and Stinky Lulu Says is where I have my say about what I see. And in this next cycle of episodes, which will drop each week for the fall or autumn of 2020 from now until at least the end of November, I will offer some reflections on what it's like to teach a college course on theater and society now when all the theaters and all the colleges are still trying to figure out what it means to do theater, to do college remotely during a global pandemic and in the midst of all of the still unfolding uncertainties that have defined the year 2020. In this week's episode, I'll offer a bit of a preview of what this next cycle of Stinky Lulu episodes will be like, as I also comment on the relaunch of my hashtag theaterclick newsletter. I'll then offer some brief comments on this week's adventures in remote theater going, as I reflect on my encounters with two remarkable works of one-on-one theater. Katie Farman's package play, as presented by Albuquerque's Tricklock Company, and Delani Studi's Before America Was America, one of the eight microplays currently being staged one audience member as a time at a time by Theater for One in their production, Here We Are. And we're back. Are we really? Are we really back? Welcome, everyone, to the first, or in some ways, the pre-episode of the next season of Stinky Lulu Says, um, my podcast pedagogy experiment. Um, So here we are. Here we are. It's a remarkable moment. We're at the end of August, and we're looking just around the bend at an important um, semi-anniversary, the sixth month mark for when pretty much everything shut down when all the colleges and all the theaters and all the restaurants and all the gyms and all the other things came to a kind of abrupt and startling halt for us on the East Coast, for us at Princeton University in the middle of March of 2020. And so this podcast was something I had done a number of years ago and had put aside, but then at the time when I was beginning to think about how to adjust and adapt my pedagogy for a class I was teaching last spring called 21st Century Latinx Drama, I began to think if I'm going to do something, uh, if I'm going to create content and record something, it didn't feel right to record a lecture. It didn't feel right to do something like that. So I thought I also I thought maybe I'll try a podcast. And as I thought about that, I increasingly was very much alert to the idea of if I'm going to build content um, for my class, why, since part of what I do in all my classes when I teach theater courses at Princeton is think about the paradoxes of theater and higher education as as spaces in which opportunity flourishes and um, expression and identities are able to be rehearsed and explored and and elaborated and how theater and higher education are extraordinary spaces for making the world a new and different place, but they're also theater and higher education are spaces of of, um, an ethic and an emotional priority of inclusivity, but they're structured by principles and practices and protocols of exclusivity. So it's always both theater and higher ed are in this weird paradox of creating open doors for expression and opportunity, but then also saying only certain people can come in those open doors. So part of my impulse in leaning into the podcast uh, was to think about how I could open in some ways the conversation of our course outside the bubble of Princeton, beyond the higher education bubble, perhaps connecting with other folks in higher education, in the theater, in theater, in higher education, um, to join with us as as we thought together about how to make sense of the world as we're experiencing it now. And that impulse made sense in the emergency of March, uh, 2020. It feels like it also makes additional sense in the fall as I'm teaching this course called Theater and Society Now, which is in way a way a course that is asking, what is theater now? 
how does theater fit in the society now? And we are, it's always a lot, the course is always a laboratory course. It's always a course that's responding to the human, to the human events and current events of the theater industry in the semester in which we, we undertake it. And it's also a course which engages robustly with, a, with an active and vigorous practice of theater going. And so we're gonna be doing all of that, but we're gonna be doing all of that in the context of the United States in the fall of 2020, after a summer in which our reckoning has, has erupted around the economy, around racial justice, and around questions of uh, health and our communal responsibilities to one another. This is also a semester, Theater and Society Now is also gonna be going along as we move toward a presidential election in the United States. So it did seem that in some ways having this moment, this podcast moment, this Sunday episode moment of allowing, of charting some of the contours of what's going on in the world this week, um, both sets us up to have the seminar conversation on Tuesday with the students enrolled in the class, but it also might set up a sort of a space of dialogue for us in the virtual mediums of social media and other spaces that um, we all have access to in different ways right now. So each episode, of the new iteration of the podcast will in some ways reflect typically with a question on some of the bigger, the hot topics of the week. And those hot topics will flagged by another resource I want to make sure all listeners of this podcast are aware of, which is I've also relaunched um, my hashtag theater click newsletter. It's a newsletter that I started the first time I taught this course in 2018 because I knew I wanted to teach a course in current events that engaged meaningfully with the writing that was happening about contemporary theater in a variety of different platforms, both the traditional press, the independent press, the blogosphere, Twitter, um, academic uh, platforms sort of perhaps more um, sort of off the radar, sort of really trying to figure out what is the conversation going on around the contemporary theater and how does that chart these very same questions of inclusivity and exclusivity, which were always the focus of our conversation of what is good, who, who decides what's good, what gets performed, and what is the ecosystem of the contemporary theater. And so in order to do that, to create that map, what I did was create a newsletter drawing upon a hashtag idea, hashtag theater spelled with an R-E, click spelled with a Q-U-E. So it's the theater, the theater, click. Um, and this is an intentionally sort of, we have to think about the spelling, we have to think about, especially in an audio format, how to think about what that is. It's hashtag theater spelled R-E, click spelled C-L-I-Q-U-E. And part of what I was interested in that sort of the, par the, par the paradox of that title is I, I like the idea of theater click because it does two things. On the one hand, it names both the alleged and actual exclusivity of the theater. The idea of is theater always in its own little bubble? When does theater ever reach outside its bubble? Is theater inevitably um, uh, sort of clickish? In what ways does it, is it an exclusive society, uh, sort of bars to entry for audiences, for aspiring artists, for folks who want to sort of take their work, get their work staged? These, in some ways, theater is a click. There's all kinds of obstacles to access an opportunity in the theater. And yet it's also a space where that defines itself by an ethic and an orientation toward uh, all voices are welcome. We're really interested in having the voices reflect. So there's, it's often this ideological paradox going on in terms of access and opportunity to the theater itself. So I thought that the theater click idea opened up that question in a provocative way. I also like the theater click because it's, it's a homonym for the word that actually is the one of the key additional motives of my setting up the newsletter is when I say theater click, the word you might have heard has been like click, like click your heels or click your tongue or click a news, uh, click a link. And indeed, it's that last one, click a link. That is a big part of what I want the hashtag theater click to do. One of the paradoxes, because theater is itself a sort of a rarefied space, like theater, um, even the biggest hit on Broadway can only seat a certain number of people at a time. The biggest house on Broadway can only seat a certain number of people at that one time. So it's already always exclusive. 
That has led to a, to a problem in contemporary journalism where theater journalism doesn't drive the same number of clicks because it's not the Kardashians, because it's not Star Wars, because it's not this giant phenomenon. It's not even the, it's not even a WAP. It's, it's, it's not as big. And so it doesn't drive as many interests. And it also doesn't drive perennial interest of returning. Like theater reviews are notoriously, notoriously limited in the number of clicks they tend to garner because they're seen as having an expiration date. And so part of what has been a suppressive force in the range of commentary available about contemporary theater has been that the, uh, the financial imperatives in contemporary journalism tend not to see the value in theater commentary critique and, and criticism and coverage. And so part of what I was interested in is how can I get folks out of their own little theater bubbles and start clicking articles uh, clicking on the links, driving traffic to these different sites of the things that I thought, of the kinds of commentary that I thought was the most relevant and most useful. So it's a curatorial impulse for me to sort of create a, a list of the articles I think you should see and click them, give them some traffic. So that's the idea of Theater Click. It's a weekly newsletter. It gathers a variety of different things. And my premise in, in Theater Click is to give a single a signal boost, the most exciting, most interesting, and most notable writing of this week. It also gives a survey of what, what, what were the questions driving the conversation among theater makers that week, if there were some. And I have found over the last year in particular that there are these cycles in the trends. So in some ways, both this podcast and the Theater Click newsletter aspire to document, in some ways, what we are experiencing right now. So everybody in the class, you're expected to subscribe to the newsletter, which also will drop on Sundays. Anybody listening, I hope you'll consider doing so as well. Um, you can find, uh, I'll talk at the end of the episode about how you can find your way to subscribing if you don't do so already. So that's basically what the podcast will do is each week. Um, so basically what the podcast will do is each week, I'll say hi, and I'll introduce the big question that seemed to emerge in the theater click this week. Um, what seemed to be the hot topic or the trend or the, the space of uncertainty. And also, um, and so I'll offer some reflections on that, probably drawing upon the articles in this week's newsletter. Um, and then I will turn my attention in the second half, which is about what I'll do now, I'll turn my attention to offering brief commentary on some of my experiments or my adventures in remote theater going. Um, this is a little bit different than I've done before when I've taught this class, where we would typically just arrive and comment on the shows that we saw together. But what we what I'll be doing is I'll continue as I've been doing since, since March is I will continue to experiment and to have adventures in remote theater going. And so this podcast also will in some ways document not so much reviews, but offer my critical and commentary reflections on the performances I've chosen to encounter this week. So each podcast will sort of operate in that one-two punch. I will uh, sort of reflect on sort of what came up on the theater and, and theater commentary and what other theater current events of the week. And then I'll offer some reflection, uh, sometimes brief, sometimes extended, on the uh, remote theater ex theater going experiences I chose to undertake this week. And so all the links to the theater going, to the other things, some other materials we're reading in the class and materials I just think are worth noting um, will be gathered in the uh, Theater Click newsletter archive, which will be accessible um, through um, both a link on my scholar page, pin tab, pin tab on my Twitter feed, and I'll detail some of those particulars at the end of this episode. So that's what each podcast will be. Start with me saying hi, going and talking about current events, and doing what I'm about to do now and turn my attention to this week's adventures in remote theater going. But first, Package Play by Katie Farman, as presented by Trick Luck Company in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Now, Trick Luck Company is a company with whom I have a long relationship. Um, I'm from Albuquerque. I've lived I lived in Albuquerque for most of the for the first decade of this of this century, and I um, they've presented my work. I've known them for they're a company of 27 years standing, so I've known them in my hometown for a number of years, and they've been widely known, really a pillar of the Albuquerque community for for much of that 27 years as being a, a company that both um, made work, created original what we would call now devised theater pieces. Um, uh, as well as a company that was really committed to bringing the world of experimental 
Theater to Albuquerque. They hosted a, a annual festival called the Revolutions Fe Revolutions Festival, which brought um, typically dozens of companies from around the world, like Uganda and Argentina and Poland and all kinds of places, to Albuquerque for uh, an experience of um, creative exchange that engaged a really um, robust and committed audience, um, transgenerational audience of Albuquerque theater goers. So, really important cultural institution in Albuquerque. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, the package play is their final presentation for the time being. At the beginning of um, the 20th iteration of the Revolutions Festival was just in its opening days when uh, the COVID crisis caused everything to shut down and the company has to find a way to sort of scramble, buy new tickets to send folks back uh, to their home countries all over the world. And so, um, a small scrappy theater company was in the middle of launching its biggest event of the year. All the money had been put out to make it happen right at the point the tickets would have started coming in and coming back and it would have all sort of found its way to a financial balance. Um, the company had to stop and so it had to eat the costs of the entire festival. And as a result of that, the company had to really pause and look into what it um vision for its future was and what would be an ethical or responsible way to proceed. And the decision that the um, company made was to cease operations, to close its doors, release its, its beloved downtown theater space in downtown Albuquerque, and to sort of use the remainder of 2020 as a sort of a revisioning moment, a moment to pause, to reflect, and to consider forward what or what are the what's the work that Tricklock wants to do, or at least the artist ensemble at the heart of Tricklock, what do they want to do? And so we don't know what the future is of Tricklock. Tricklock has closed its doors, and Tricklock may open its doors, or something else under a different name may open with a slightly different set of objectives and visions. So we don't know. But one of the things we do know is the final presentation of uh, Tricklock Company in its current iteration is this piece called The Package Play by Katie Farman. And The Package Play operates under a fairly simple conceit. It is you go to a website, you enter your mailing address, and in so doing, you've made your reservation. And once you've made your reservation, uh, TrickLock will send you a package, a, sm a small package that includes your play. Um, you know, postal service welling, that is, you'll get this box and you'll return to the confirmation email that was sent when you had made your reservation that includes some basic instructions of how to set yourself up to experience the package play. And um, the package play works fairly simply. You uh, download an audio file to your device of choice. Uh, you follow some preliminary prompts, uh, warning you that you might want to warn the other folks, letting you know that you might want to warn the other folks in your household that you'll be doing some things, wandering through different spaces like the kitchen and the bathroom of your home. And uh, it'll probably take about 30 or 40 minutes, depending on how you engage with the process. And that's it. And so um, for me, I ordered, I made my reservation early on the second I saw it. So sometime in mid-July, I made my reservation and a week or two or three later, I got a remarkable little package uh, box about, um, I don't know, a little, almost a cube, like three inches by four inches by, by four inches, you know, um, that arrived and sat on my desk very observantly. Uh, for a good while. And I knew that this week I was meeting with the folks at TrickLock and having a conversation with them about their work. And um, so on Thursday, the day before I was to talk to them, I just sat down and I said, I gotta, I gotta experience the package play. So I did. And um, the experience was, was lovely and really opened up some interesting questions. Uh, for me about what it means to participate in theater, what it means to participate in what I call remote theater going in our contemporary moment. Look at the package in front of you. Just look. Don't touch yet. What do you notice? Is it a large package? Medium? Does the package look new or old? What do you notice? 
And that's how packet play begins. You're invited in by an unnamed, um, we're guessing, uh, female identifying narrator who sort of is speaking with a kind of unexpected intimacy to you and telling you what to do. And in ways that really align with this practice of theater going, in that opening moment where we've been primed, even by this apparatus of the package play, to uh, sort of be audience members, to receive prompts, to receive invitations, to receive provocations from a performance. And because of the way the package play works, it unfolds much as you just heard, it unfolds in a way where there's a variety of suggestions of things you're asked to do, things you're asked to go to your kitchen. And th there's a silence that follows that because there's an expectation it might take you some time to go to your kitchen. And indeed, I was worried as I raced with my with my with my um, with my Dixie cup. One of the things that's in the in the package that you open is a Dixie cup. And there's a couple other things. I'm not going to mention them for fear of spoilers. But um, so I was racing with my Dixie cup. She said, take your cup, go to the kitchen. And I was like, oh, but the kitchen is downstairs and around the way. Like, is it going to be enough time? And there was enough time. And so there's a space where I was very alert to being asked to participate and also being very alert in the fact that there was no consequence if I didn't, that there was this way in which I was choosing to join the performance, the ways in which, um, which for me activated something very clearly about the audience practice of theater going is this way in which we are invited to be present with somebody else's expectations of us that the audience that the performers are asking us to join a world that they have taken the responsibility to create and in some ways we are exceeding our we are we are sort of submitting lack of a better word we are um we are accepting their leadership in creating the world that they are now inviting us into and this is something i think is really interesting about this moment in remote theater making is the ways in which how do we what are the what are the basics what are the foundations that we want to build is it about poetry is it about embodiment is it about the audience performer relationship and in this case even though this is by all means a mediated performance you know it's a recorded script that we are listening to we are actually not looking at anything that the performer knows that we're looking at, but we're being prompted to imagine, to reflect. We're asked to go to a window and look at the sky. We're asked to go sit somewhere comfy. We're asked to go to our bathroom and look at ourselves in the mirror and even dance for a moment while watching ourselves. And so there's this moment when we are being asked to sort of think about our body in relationship to the act of performance and relationship to the prompt offered by performance in a way that is time bound. So what is what is remarkable is how package play sort of holds, takes some of these fundamental assumptions we have about what means theater, this idea that it is an event that happens in space and time. And it asks us to sort of pivot that, not necessarily go to a particular destination, but to sort of sit with a series of prompts open a box, follow the cues in an audio script, and then have our own experience as prompted by the performance that has been pre-prepared. And I think that is one of the things about what I really admire about what Package Play does, is it lets go of an expectation of response, even as it does script the possibility of our having our own experience in relation to the performance. Now, if that doesn't really make sense, let me try to say it another way, is any theater maker worth their salt knows they have no idea what an audience will, member will take away from their performance. All they know is what they have set up to create an experience. And one of the great things about, um, one of the great traditions of experimental theater is this idea of the expectation that there's gonna be a disparate array of responses. I think if you go to a Broadway show, every a, broad, a big Broadway musical, everything is produced. So it's almost a coercive act where you sort of have to respond the way it wants you to respond because there's this huge machine guiding that response. To have an opposite response, it's sort of stepping away from that apparatus. Most of experimental theater doesn't necessarily, I think the best of experimental theater allows the multiplicity of responses, allows somebody to have a different reaction. Like somebody might have a really 
bright and uplifting experience and other folks might have something more pensive and more reflective. And I think what package play really does allow it, it scripts some sort of beats, it scripts a progression, it scripts an arc, and it asks us to follow that, but it doesn't presume what our ex- what our experience will be. It doesn't presume that we're supposed to end in a particular way. It's looking to activate an experience of ours through the act of our joining a performance as an audience member. Because what's remarkable about package play is we are not asked to co-create the performance. We are asked to sit in the role of audience, but in so doing, we are under we are taking on the opportunity to co-create the performance which has been offered to us when this package arrived in our mailbox. So what I will say about package play uh, as by way of closing is I thought it was a really um, elegantly uh, precise, simple provocation to engage with the intimacy of experiencing performance together, even when we are separated. We all had our experiences of package play and they were all our own. And that is a captures something beautiful about what theater going is, is we may have sat in a room with 100, 500, 1,000 other people, but we still had our own experience. And so to find a way to distill that so it could be as dynamic and spontaneous and as personal, as intimate, as idiosyncratic as my experience was, I know if I were to do package play again, even though I knew it was coming, I would have a different experience if I were to do it again. And that's sort of something that's very thrilling to me about what... um, Katie Farman and Tricklock Company have created with Package Play. I will note that Package Play officially closed on August 16th, so about a week ago. And um, But a little birdie tells me that they are still receiving reservations and still sending out packages uh, for the time being. And I also heard a whisper that this... The success and the really the sort of the broad reaching, I don't know if it's global, but at least national impact of package play has inspired Katie Farman in collaboration with whatever trick lock's becoming to perhaps continue and revisit this idea of package play and explore it and explore what its dimensions are. And so there may be future package plays coming up uh, at a website near you. So keep an eye tricklock.org and uh that will be a space to keep an eye out for that but um and if anything else comes up and you're listening to stinky lulu says or following the theater click newsletter you'll likely see mention of of any future iterations of package play but for now that is um my encounter with package play capturing something very specific about what it means to go to the theater and finding a way to bring that experience to audience members, wherever they might be, even when they're not looking at something like a screen, but listening to prompts arriving to them through a recording, through an audio recording. So, um, so yeah, so, uh, so that's package play. And so with that, I'll turn my attention to the other intimate one-on-one performance I happened to capture this week, which was, um, my experience of the new iteration of theater for one. So let's take a breath and here we go. Now, some of you might have some experience with Theater for One. Theater for One is a mobile state-of-the-art performance space that was conceived by artistic director Christine Jones, and then Christine Jones, excuse me, and then designed by um, architects to create basically a mobile, a theater booth. I mean, if you've ever seen a Theater for One uh, installation, it basically looks almost like two. Um, uh, photo booths sort of butted together. It uh, it has the look of the kind of the corrugated black surface of like a of like like roadies, like the big crates that sound and light equipment go in when when tours go on the road. And so when you see it, when I've seen it in a performance lobby, I've often th- first mistaken it for a giant rig that was being brought in to support a performance in an actual performance space. What it took me a while to understand is that this box, this this sort of mobile 
object space is actually the performance space. And it stages a, um, and it becomes the setting for an encounter between a single audience member and a single performer in this idea of theater for one, of activating a different kind of immediacy and an intimacy um, that uh, embraces both uh, sort of accident and surprise uh, to create um but also to create uh, this space of intimate theatrical exchange and to relinquish expectation, to sort of allow the audience member to take the risk of entering in because it's not, these performances are very usually very short. The ones that I'll be talking about here, you're blocked for a 15 minute block of time. So, so the risk is a limited risk, but it's also a sense of risk and a sense of uncertainty. And indeed, when I signed up for, uh, and so this, uh, so Theater for One has presented in a variety of residencies around the world, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, in different cities around the world, uh, and then also at Princeton's University, Princeton's Lewis Center for the Arts, which, which actually played a role in developing the piece, um, in collaboration with Octopus Theatricals, Mara Isaacs. But um, so it's been an, it's been something I've been aware of. For example, when the Princeton's Lewis Center for the Arts had its opening festival, um, Theater for One was one of the performers that was going on through the entire weekend, and I kept trying to squeeze my way in, but the line was I could never quite get a slot. So I've never experienced Theater for One even though I had a sense of what it was. And so I was very interested when a few weeks ago I became aware that um, Brookfield uh, Arts Brookfield, which is a, a sort of a wing of a real estate management company called Brookfield Properties, um, and Arts Brookfield uh, you know, sort of is the arts wing, creating public-facing, no-cost, world-class cultural experiences for for folks each year using this public spaces in their properties to allow folks to encounter art. So it's an interesting way where a global real estate conglomerate is actually contributing in some ways to creating space for art and easy access to art of all different kinds, ranging from cultural festivals and films and art exhibits, as well as dynamic and surprising um, live performance events like Theater for One. And what was interesting is my understanding was is that Theater for One had been in conversations with Brookfield Place to sort of put 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 a project into place at one of their properties this summer in in New York City when of course that went awry they looped back and thought about the idea of what would it mean to create um theater for one in a virtual or a remote encounter as not using the box but using everything that was learned in the booth in the box and to see if that might migrate in ways generative and productively into a virtual encounter and that's what was uh, a series of performances that entered into uh, its first iteration this week. They perform on Thursday nights through the through the end of September, um, uh, but only on Thursday nights. And what they are is it's theater for one, and the show is called Here We Are, and it features eight commissioned micro plays which um, speak to the times and times we are in. And it's produced by Mara Isaacs of Octopus Theatricals, and it was commissioned by Arts Brookfield and presented as part of Brookfield Place's hashtag BLP at home programming. Um, and it also devised since the, the booth that is sort of the theater for one signature, since the booth isn't there, it developed a new platform and a programming design, which was really an important part of the experience um, by uh, the open end, by Mark Downey and Paul Kaiser of Open Ended Group. And the, so, but at the heart of it, at the heart of theater for one is always is creating this technical space, creating creating this sort of configured space, a built environment, whether it's technical or physical, and to curate a high standard of an art experience that then allows audience members to join. And in this case, for here we are, um, uh, Octopus Theatricals and Arts Brookfield commissioned plays by eight women of color, Nicole Salter, Lynn Nottage, Lydia Diamond, Regina Taylor, Carmelita Tropicana, Jacqueline Backhouse, and Delana Studi. And each of those plays then were partnered with an actor. In one case, like Regina Taylor performs the piece that she writes, but otherwise it's with an, as a different actor. I believe it's only one. Maybe Carmelita Tropicana performs as well. I'm not sure. But um, so there's one script, one performer, and then there's a variety of spots, like six spots or so each performance that you can sign up for. And the way you sign up is you sort of go to the website and you uh, enter your email and then you get a notice on Monday morning. And um, unfortunately, it's uh, one of those questions of access and opportunity because the spots go very quickly.
And so, um, so it's worth hopping to it. It's worth crossing your fingers and it's worth showing up at your designated time because the way it works is then you get a confirmation and in your confirmation comes, I believe a 10 digit numerical code. And that numerical code is in some ways your ticket for entry. And, um, so what I did is I had a 6 PM slot. I had a 6 p.m. slot on Thursday. And so my job was to go to the website at that time. And I was actually it's sort of in that zone of remote theater. Is It's unlike package play where I could sort of do it whenever I felt like it, whenever I had 30 to 45 minutes free and open. This one was when I had to be at a device that could support this. And indeed, the device requirements came with a confirmation. In addition to the 10-digit code, I was given uh, instructions that I should be on a device, ideally a, 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 um, a desktop or a laptop, uh, that could use the Chrome browser. It need the the whatever device I was accessing it on needed to have a camera that worked and a microphone that worked. And so it activated immediately this kind of sense of, oh, this is not going to be just me pressing play and watching a video. This is sort of me showing up at a certain time and they want my camera to work. They want my microphone to work. So it opened up a little bit of a sense of uncertain expectation, which I think connects with theater for one's vision of sort of this unexpected, the serendipity, the surprise, the risk. And I didn't know what show I was going to see. I knew that there were these eight playwrights, most of whose names I know and admire greatly, and all of whose names I know and admire greatly. So I'm like, okay, the plays are going to be good. And then I saw the list of actors and directors, and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm in good hands. But I still didn't get to self-curate what I was seeing. I didn't go in to say, I want to see Carmelita Tropicana's show. I just was getting the show I was slotted for. And so... And it wasn't until, but even then, so I get there at 6 p.m. and it's like, there's no program. I just go in, I enter my tangent code, hoping I'm doing it right. And then all of a sudden I'm in this screen and I'm in this screen that very clearly feels like a design screen. It feels almost like a game space. And there's a, still a text, uh, um, a field where I can clearly enter text and I begin to see words floating into focus and then slowly um, dissolving out of focus. And there were words like, hello, say hello. And there was a prompt at some point, sort of tell us where you are. And I was like, I wasn't going to be the first one to speak into this black screen, this black space. But then I began to realize that there were other voices in the room, other, other folks. So folks were like, you would see a bunch of hellos pop up and they, you couldn't hear them, but it was these words. Sometimes the H would be capitalized, sometimes it wouldn't be. And so I got a sense that, oh, there's other folks sitting at their screen somewhere else also having this experience too. And so I sort of, um, so I entered some text. I said, hello. I don't, I didn't want to say where I was. I, I was self-conscious. I didn't want to say I was, I was, at Princeton, New Jersey, for some reason. So I found other ways to say I'm in my office, I think, or something like that. And then um, periodically, there would be a voice that would come into the screen that seemed to be a moderator of the experience. I don't have confirmation of this, but there was somebody who seemed to be shaping it, like, tell us where you are, tell us how you're feeling, like this sort of prompts that were coming and folks ended up responding indifferently. And, and so I ended up entering something, I thought about it for a while, I ended up entering something like, I'm feeling curious. And all of a sudden somebody responded, hello, George. And I was like, who's George? And then somebody else said, George. And I said, oh, they're making a curious George joke. And then that was this moment of pivot when I began to realize like, oh, I'm with a bunch of randos like I am anytime I go to the theater. I'm sort of eavesdropping on my, on my fellow audience members. And it shifted my vibe. I began being sort of vaguely curious and vaguely interested and not feeling like I was responsible for shaping an experience, but I was allowing the sort of the weird words that were flowing in and like folks were talking about they were at a desk or they were at a home or they were not at home or they were, and it was like, and there were folks who were a little bit anxious and folks who were a little bit like, oh, here we go, you know, and it felt there was something oddly comforting about the chaos of these rando audience members. And, um, and then in a way I don't actually recall, suddenly it stopped and the screen shifted and the, my performance was beginning and the performance I was beginning to, I was going to see was, um, a play called a short play called, um, before America was, was America by, uh, Delana Studi. And it was directed by Nicole Salter, who is an actor, director, and it was performed by Shyla Lefner. And so 
All of a sudden this performance began and the only way I knew what show it was is at the top of the screen it told me that this was the play. So I did have a little bit of orientation and I knew that knowing Delana Studi's work, I knew that she was an important, uh, an important indeed influential voice, um, uh, indigenous, Native American, Cherokee. Uh, I, I was familiar enough with her. And so I said, okay, maybe this is going to And before America was America. I was like, okay, I'm excited, excited to see where this goes. And immediately, um, but all I'm seeing is this open screen, sort of like I would on any Zoom screen or any Skype call or any FaceTime call. And it's um, Shiloh Lefner in an, uh, easily sitting there in, a, in a, what seems to be a domestic space um, regarding me as from the side, like she's sitting in perhaps with her legs up or her feet raised and she's sitting sort of sideways adjacent to me. So she's looking at me slightly over her shoulder as she's absorbed with something, some kind of handwork. I'm not clear. It's out of my view what she's doing, but she's clearly working something, maybe sewing, maybe um, uh, uh, doing some like cleaning beans or doing something. She's doing something with her handwork on her lap. And so I'm just sitting there observing it and, um, and listening to, uh, the actor sort of speak these words and I'm getting tuning in and I'm just sort of very careful. And all of a sudden there's this moment when, uh, Lefner sort of makes this joke in character about like, Oh, don't, I can see you doing, I can see what you're thinking. And it's this moment where I, where it really activated my presence in a remarkable way. And that I suddenly remembered that, Oh yeah, she can see me. I'm not just observing this as I am observing a, any other video I might watch on my computer. This is like, actually we're in real time and she can see me and it shifted my affect. And I suddenly was sitting in the chair in a different way. And it wasn't that I was paying attention with greater acuity or anything like this. Cause I'm usually pretty, I, I usually do that anyway, but it was, there was something, my whole body went on a different kind of alert because I knew it mattered to her that I was there. And I knew in some ways I was part of the scene that she was painting. And I knew that I was somehow I didn't know who I was, but I knew I was somehow in her world and I didn't know what that meant. And so that introduced this element, which I always treasure in theater, an element of mystery, an element of urgency. Will I find out who I am in this world with her? And it was clear that I was in her world. I wasn't an eavesdropper. I wasn't a peeping Tom, but I was actually sharing this moment with her. And in some ways she was telling this story that she was telling intentionally to me. And it did allow me to listen differently to the story that her character told. It was a simple story, but a really moving story about the first time her character voted and she went to vote. She was home in Oklahoma and she went to vote with her grandmother and her grandmother was a really influential elder in the community. And so there's all these community interactions. And it was this thing where um, the character named that she was you know, fresh out of college, thought she knew everything, thought she certainly knew more than her 90 something year old grandmother. And it was a, a great moment of a familial transmission story of a story in which she realized how little she knew and how much her grandmother understood about a world that she only was beginning to glimpse. And it was a beautiful story about the lesson her grandmother taught her that day about herself as a Cherokee woman and about her place um, and her grandmother's place in a history well longer than this one election, but also tied in an important way to this particular election. It was just a beautiful, um, beautifully rendered story of familial transmission of the way that families tell each other who we are as a people. Uh, and it was just, a, it just, I just found it deeply, uh, it just settled and nestled deep within me as a story and as a beautifully told story in terms of both writing and performance. But what knocked my socks off, and this totally came at me out of the blue, it was like moments before the show ended, I think, so, I think it was moments before the show ended, there was this moment when the actor again turned and regarded me, and in a quick gesture, I'm not going to go into the details, made a, a set of references, revealing the object that had been the point of focus of their handwork, and also indicating to me um, who I was in this story that I suddenly became a character in the story, that she had been speaking to me as a person, not just random, random audience member, but as a person in her world. And the object located us in time, the, uh, the address located us in the broader span of the way that time operated in the, whole, in the whole family story. It was just, it knocked my socks off because in some ways it did that beautiful thing that theater does was it sort of 
acted like this moment when she clocked me at the very beginning, she activated a promise, a mystery and urgency. And then in this final moment, it served it and it resolved it in a way that also opened new and thrilling questions. It just knocked me out. And, and then it felt like in a poof, the performance was over. No opportunity for me to applaud, no opportunity for me to say thank you or who to say hi, but because I just, again, it was suddenly over and I found myself staring at the prompt I now saw on my screen. Um, and the prompt was asking for my reflection, sort of like an exit survey or like, uh, please rate this, please rate this purchase kind of thing almost, but different in that. Um, and so I was looking at this prompt and I was like, I don't know what to say. And I found myself staring at it with the kind of thoughtlessness, um, the kind of the brainlessness, the sort of my brain is like when, when the performance has just evacuated the stage and I'm feeling like I'm not done yet. And I just sort of stare at the empty stage, hoping my thoughts will settle in so that I can sort of pick myself to, together and go. And that, I was literally feeling that experience in front of my computer. And so all I could do was, um, was type in the three uh, lines from the play that um, were reverberating in my heart's imagination. And uh, we can't trust them. They only think with half their brains. You know, I can see you, your great grandmother, you know, these three lines. And so I just, then I pressed the button that's saying to be like the button you're pressed to submit it. And then all of a sudden I was in a new screen. And the new screen was shocking to me in that it was literally what I had just entered beneath the words of the play, the author and the, and the, and the, playwright next to a little thumbnail picture of me regarding the screen. So it has me in this moment of wordless, of this sort of brainless reflection. Um, and I'm popped up on the screen in this sort of oblong rectangle, like this re curved long rectangular. And that rectangle is stacked with about four or five, at least on my screen, it was about four or five. And I realized very quickly that these are other audience members also getting screenshot with their reflections. And so again, I was like, it was stacked along them. And of course, like the nosy person, person I am, I scanned those reflections, those screenshots, reading the titles of the different plays, seeing the names of the different writers and actors, recognizing some of those actors and writers' names, not recognizing others, finding, catching myself halfway through realizing like, oh, I know that other audience person in this screenshot. And it was all of a sudden I found myself moved in a different way because the piece activated my experience of being an audience member in addition to activating my experience of having a beautiful encounter with a piece of performed theater. So it was this interesting thing that the whole, sh the whole experience was maybe 12, 14 minutes, but it really sculpted it in this arc of how do we enter into space and understand that we are audience members and that our presence here is with others. And then how do we have this activated experience of, an, of a performer looking, engaging us and that our presence matters in this performance. And then how do we, exit? How do we exit that in a way that reminds us that it's not just us, but there are others too. And it was just, um, I mean, I got to be, it was, it was extraordinary in that it activated my experience and that full arc of an experience of being an audience member that few other of my remote theater experiences have had thus far. Because like I got to be an audience member and eavesdropper or Lukey Lou and all the other people. I got to feel that my presence in the performance mattered, that my sitting in my chair mattered to the show as it was happening. And I also got to be surprised by an unexpected experience that was orchestrated artfully and with clarity and intentionality which altogether activated emotions I would not have anticipated in something so with the constraints that it had. And it was that my response was not through, it was like, there was something that wasn't through the screen. It was through an experience that everything that I used the screen to access activated in me. And it was deeply, I mean, it was really st startling uh, how moved I was and how transported I was in this brief 15 minute window. So it was a remarkable experience and one of the most, one of the more memorable pieces of remote theater going I have had, um, one of the most memorable experiences of remote theater going I have had thus far and one I will, I continue to reflect upon and I hope, I don't want to be greedy, I don't want to grab more spots, but I would go back in a second and I encourage you to try to find your way in um, as long as this, this series of performances or perhaps more. Um, I did hear a little birdie say there might be an extension or expansion. They're exploring how this platform might be able to serve more people. Uh, the tickets are free, um, but they're limited. So it it opens up that other question of access of, of people knowing how to get into a show is its own kind of measure of exclusion. Like some people know the secret tricks like I did um, through my networks, my channels, my my affiliations. I was able to get in. 
Um, whereas I think a lot of folks might have might have been locked out because the slots were so were so were so quickly taken. So it's an interesting performance, and I'm curious to see um, how many get to have the experience and whether the other seven shows are structured by some of the same features, which just seemed to me to be so part of what it must be to do theater for one. So that was my experience. That was my encounter of theater for one. Here we are. Uh, when I got to encounter the play before America was America written by Delana Studi and performed by Shyla, um, Shyla Lefner as directed by Nicole Salter um, in the production of here of uh, theater for one presented by octopus theatricals in collaboration with um arts brookfield so um so that's it and here we go take a breath now a word about citations stinky lulu says is an independent project of stinky lulu productions recorded on the unceded traditional territory of the Nanticoke Lenny Lenape people. Stinky Lulu says, reimagines an existing, albeit dormant podcast in response first to the shutdown of spring 2020 to support the curriculum of my Princeton University course, 21st Century Latinx Drama, and then after a brief hiatus to, re to continue the conversation as part of my current or fall 2020 course, Theater and Society Now. Links to the resources referenced in this episode can be found in the August 23rd edition of my hashtag theaterclick newsletter. For a link to the newsletter's archive and to other resources, look for the Profe Herrera tab on my Princeton University Scholar page, scholar.princeton.edu slash bherrera. The Profe Herrera tab is also where you'll find a link to the transcript for today's episodes. Transcripts will typically be available within 48 hours of the podcast first posting. A quick note, transcripts are being made for season three. If you would like a transcript for a prior episode of Stinky Lulu Says, please contact me and I will see about getting that done. A direct link to the Profe Herrera tab, where all of these links will be available, is also the pinned tweet on my Twitter profile page, at StinkyLulu. And if you have something you would like to have your say about what Stinky Lulu says, you can always find me on both Twitter and Instagram at StinkyLulu, S-T-I-N-K-Y-L-U-L-U. -L -U. And you can always email me at StinkyLulu at gmail.com. And of course, this podcast pedagogy experiment relies upon the questions, comments, and provocations of all of my listeners, not just those enrolled in my course, but also all of the rest of y'all. And as the podcast continues to evolve, this semester especially, I will be relying on your questions and provocations to prompt what Stinky Lulu says next time. So I do look forward to hearing from you. And thanks for listening. Until next time, as you maintain your social distance and wear those dang masks, do what you can to take care of yourself and your beloveds. And as we all commit to doing that, I invite you to join me in my belief that so long as we keep listening to each other, we together can grow forward through this. At least, that's what Stinky Lulu says. <laughs>